It was the best thing we ever did because what we learned was we opened the door to an entirely different customer. So the 10-piece customer is a very different customer than the high-dose customer. And all of our product revenues and turnover grew. This is The Dime. Dive into the cannabis and hemp industry through trends, insights, predictions, and tangents. What's up, guys? Welcome back to another episode of The Dime. I'm Brian Fields, and with me, as always, is Kellen Finney. And this week, we've got a very special guest, Christine Smith, CEO and founder of Groon. Christine, thanks for taking the time. How are you doing today? I'm, I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Excited to talk to you. Kellen, how are you doing? I'm doing really, really well. Excited to talk to Christine. Excited to kind of dive into the world of edibles. I'm also very grateful that you know the West Coaster, right? To share some wisdom with the East Coast over there. Yeah, that that is that is correct. Uh, I know that Christine has aspirations on the East Coast, and we would like her to join the East Coast sooner rather than later. So, for all those regulators out there that maybe can expedite the process, please help us. We need uh, more edibles of Groon. So, Christine, for our listeners, on friendly about you, can you give a little background about yourself. Yeah, sure. So uh, my name is Christine Smith. I uh, started a, an edible company by by chance, uh, not by choice, way back in the early days, um, which feels like many moons ago, um, 10 years ago, about 10 years ago, in the basement of my house. Um, I was practicing as an architect and uh, really started this as a, as a love hobby project, and it quickly grew into something much more. Um, we're based originally out of Portland, Oregon, and uh, you know, kind of came into this in the medical market back in the forgiving days where you could kind of play around with things. And and really just kind of took the took profits and kept reinvest, re, reinvesting and doubling down on what we were doing. Um, grew very quickly in the Oregon market to a to a top premium brand. We started in chocolate exclusively. Um, then 2019 realized there was a whole world out there that we were missing with gummy. I've always stayed exclusively in the edible category, so we've really never danced in in uh, in in production or in retail. Um, we expanded into Nevada in 2020, uh, Arizona and Oklahoma in 2021, Missouri and Canada in 2022. And we're really excited to be coming over to your neck of the woods, both Maryland and New Jersey um, here in 2023. Awesome. I want to stick with those early days. What was the inspiration and what kind of led you to kind of going down and experimenting while you're an architect with starting to make some of those early products? You know, I'll tell you the truth. I mean, I'm a fourth generation Texan. I was in my upper 30s. I had never seen a cannabis plant or touched it in my entire life. I was a young single mother, recently divorced. I needed a side hustle. So in the medical days, you could could grow as a caregiver with cards for patients. And so I started doing that in my basement as uh, and I started learning more about the plant. I fell in love with the plant, really realized pretty quickly that I was not a smoker, but I was looking for an alternative to alcohol um, as a young mother that on a microdose level, um, and there were no products like that. Everything was like, Cheeto-induced hangovers on the couch for nine hours at a time. You know, Mylar-wrapped, cell, or cellophane-wrapped Rice Krispie treats that that were made with can of butter and stuff. So I just started experimenting. And pretty quickly, you know, at the time I was using RSO. That was the only thing available. Distillate didn't even exist back then. And pretty quickly discovered that chocolate was a really, really good match for, for RSO and especially dark chocolate and salt and some of these other flavors. And, and I, I've always loved creating and culinary aspects of things. And I don't know, I just wasn't afraid. I reached out to a chocolatier. I apprenticed under one, flew to the East Coast and, and just kind of dove into it. And um just started this little company as a, as a side gig. Um, the word Grun, the name, simply means green in Swedish. 
Um, I studied architecture school in in uh, Scandinavia during college, and yeah, it just kind of. I mean, I I say it was like it just kind of happened, but I mean, there's been a it's been so much work, and you know, I I would. I had a nanny that was living all pair from Chile that was living with me and I would make the product. Uh, and then she uh, would go down and wrap it. We would trade off the baby. And then we had one guy, one guy that was driving around in his car with a shoebox, selling a hand wrapped chocolate bars to the dispensaries. And that's how it started. And uh, millions and millions of products later, you know, we're still, we're still here. We've stayed self-funded through our growth. Um, it just really doubled down and stayed really lean. I love it. So let's stay with those early days. Obviously, there was a point in your career when you realized this was more than just a side hustle, <laughs> hobby, and you were going to make that transition full time. Yeah. Through that conversation you had internally, and then with the people around, and like was there oh. any hesitation going through that when you first made that move. You know what? I think my dad just about all his hair fell out. Right. So he was he was like, "You're doing what? You're giving up this career in architecture?" You know, I was a junior partner at my firm. To do what? Um, yeah, no, I, you know, there was no hesitation for me. I really believe, you know, the, the at the time, Oregon had passed adult use. So we knew this was coming on. And I just, you know, I saw it as an opportunity. And so I cashed in my stock options at my architecture firm and took all the money and bought a tempering machine and leased a little space and did all the construction work myself and just kind of dove in. And really, that's where it started. But you guys, it's, these were the early days when you could start a cannabis company with $50,000. You know, some people say they could do it for less. I I mean, I I think I I I probably had about $50,000 that I started with with, you know, really doubling down and ordering packaging ingredients, buying some like just the starter equipment and paying for a license. And Oregon's an open state, which which allows for you, know, you don't have to to win it um on merit. You could just pay the fees to to get it. It's a $5,000 fee to get a license. They are, they don't exist anymore, but at the time it was possible. And, you know, it's been, it's been a real journey. It's been a real challenge, but best thing outside of my children I'll ever do in my whole life. I know it. I'm, ha- I'm in the middle of it. Right. So chocolate, right? Uh, I've heard that it's one of the more challenging form factors to work with in terms of successfully generating edibles on scale and like the whole homogenization aspects and those things. So like, were there other form factors that you experimented with in the early days? And like, what was like the kind of end all be all that made you kind of settle just on chocolate? Sure. Well, I started with chocolate. And and ironically enough, chocolate is super homogenous. And the reason is that it's fat soluble, right? It's kind of like butter, white butter and oil. Um, Cannabis is fat soluble. Um, And it's why it works so well with those. It's actually much harder to get homogeneity in sugar or in gelatin products. The hardest would be a pure sugar, like like a lollipop, because the fat doesn't want to separate from the sugar. That was one of the reasons why I started in chocolate. I think the hardest thing for people with chocolate is the tempering aspect of it. And then, you know, the temperature control, but tempering chocolate by hand or being able to buy the equipment to do it accurately is more expensive and is really challenging. What, uh, what is tempering? I'm yeah, I'm tempering. <laughs> yeah, no, 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 for sure. So tempering, tempering chocolate is when it makes it shelf stable. So Chocolate itself, if you buy chocolate, it's uh, maybe not chocolate chips, but if you buy a chocolate bar, it is tempered chocolate. And that tempered chocolate, the molecules are actually in a grid format. So that it's a molecularly, it's a it's a molecular chemical process that happens 
happens. So when you melt chocolate, the molecules are all floating around, like they're doing all their thing. And when you cool it, if it's not tempered, they form in just like a whatever format they're going to be. And that it won't hold the temperature as well and you won't get this clean snap and the sugar and the fat will start to separate. So if you've ever gotten chocolate and it looks a little powdery or it's got kind of some white specks on it, that's not chocolate that's gone bad. That's just the fat and the sugar that's separating. Chocolate is super shelf stable. Tempering chocolate is a process of taking it through a temperature conversion. And so you take it, you melt it, you bring it back up to a certain temperature, you you drop it just a little bit, and you can put some seed chocolate that is tempered in at just the right temperature. And the chocolate itself will copy that molecular structure and it'll temper itself and then it'll cool and stay hard. So it is a chemical reaction to make tempered chocolate. And so they make machines that can do it for you and can spout it out. But generally, people that are starting out are often doing it by hand, which is which is a beautiful and very challenging process. <laughs> is that um, how you started out by hand? I started out by hand and then getting a little machine. I called it the baby machine. I still own it. It was $800. And I was so afraid when I bought it that I spent $800 on this machine that I ordered from Amazon. And uh, yeah, and then, and then you, and then <laughs> I know. What an incredible story. <laughs> you know, I was like, oh my gosh, I'm going to spend $800. It could make 20 chocolate bars at a time. It could hold two pounds of chocolate. I even started, that's where it started. And then you, and then you scale up to the 20 pound machine and then the 50 pound machine. And now we work off of, you know, we have multiple 200 pound tanks that feed into, feed into tempering machines, automatic tempering machines that people operate. And they have chilled coils that, that the machine, the, you know, that the chocolate rolls through. But chocolate is only depending on the market, somewhere between 15 to 20% of the market share. Most of the market, the, the edible market is a gummy market. It just it just is. That's just where we're at, right? It's 70% of the market is gummy. And, and we really quickly realized that being number one in chocolate is great, but it only gets you so much. And so we leapt into, leapt into gummies around 2019. And we thought we knew what we were doing because we were such great chocolate makers. And we didn't know what we were doing. We made marshmallows. You know why? Because gelatin is a protein just like egg whites. So if you whip egg whites, they'll turn hard um, and stiff, right? Gelatin will do the exact same thing. So it's really easy if you don't have the correct ingredients. And so we uh, we hired a food scientist um, that formerly worked for Haribo. And she really helped us develop our, our gummy recipe, which has made it spectacular and and just really, really great form factor. And so now our gummies, our pearls and our megas are about 70%, 75% of our, of our revenue and product base. Did, did one of the pearls and megas go first? Take us through the origin when you first got started understanding yeah. from a capital standpoint, we've got to invest, we're doing chocolate, but we want to expand. Take us through the, sure. th- that thought process so people can understand like the challenging of those decisions and understanding of like how important it is to get that first entry into the market, at least on the right path. Sure. Yeah. So we started with a 10 piece, which were the pearls. So they're individual, beautiful little balls. We call them pearls because they look just like pearls and it's just great and fun. And again, this was just in the Oregon market back back in those days. Um, we started with the pearls. They did really well. And we were really excited with their success. But what we saw in the market itself is Oregon, you know, everything on the West Coast is happening earlier than other areas. Um, and Oregon in, in itself being an open market without limited license structures saw really large price compression happen. And the market really tanked back in 2000. It was like 19. This is before COVID, 2019. And our chief revenue officer who had, the time was our head of sales came to me and said, I think we're really missing the opportunity here to bring out a product that's at a lower price point. Same kind of, we're just passes value onto these consumers. And my initial response was, no way, this is going to eat our own margins up. People aren't going to buy our higher margin products. They're just going to want the lesser value product, which in a sense 
is a is a single serve, right? So it's a compliant product, but it's a larger pearl. We call it the mega. It initially started as the mega pearl because it's just like the mega ball. Now it's just known as the mega. But he said, trust me, I know I can, this is right. I promise you this won't be a mistake. And I did. I blindly trusted him. It was the best thing we ever did because what we learned was we opened the door to an entirely different customer. So the 10-piece customer is a very different customer than the high-dose customer. And all of our product revenues and turnover grew. The Megas are our best volume-producing product. It's not our highest revenue product, but it is definitely a market disruptor. Um, and it's so fun. And it really services a level of this industry of consumers that are looking to buy a product for under $10. That's a higher dose product, a higher concentrated dose product than a, than the single, than the 10 piece, 10 milligram piece. That's a big piece of what the today's customer is in the cannabis industry. I completely agree. And I think that a lot of companies talk about how there's this like market for high dose edibles and a lot of people just don't touch it, right? And like I know like a lot of my friends that are like active consumers, they'll go into a dispensary and buy edibles. And then they get this like terrible feeling because they buy a they 10 edibles and then they eat the whole thing. And they're like, well, like I just ate my whole package of edibles in one day. I feel like a derelict, right? Uh versus the mega, a lot of my friends are like, it's way better because like it's just I feel like it's one dose just for me kind of a thing. So I think it's it's brilliant, honestly. It's, you know, the other thing too, and we, we spent a lot of time on this by saying, what is a value, right? So getting a value product does not necessarily mean it's cheap. We're putting the exact same inputs in, in the mega as we are the pearls. It's the same high quality ingredients, the Japanese gelatin, the, the fruit powders, everything. We're just passing on the value of putting that in a single instead of the, the labor and the, the input of doing it 10 times over in a small base. So it's like the equivalent of buying a two liter of Coke versus buying the cost of buying a 12 pack, right? Like, there, it's and those are different customers that are doing that and servicing both of them is is it's fun and passing it on where people feel like they're getting a value and it's and it's really fun. I mean, it's a fun product to eat a gumball of a of weed. <laughs> and I think it also speaks to the type of person that's making those decisions, right? For me, like I'm going for the ten piece, but if I wanted to try a new product, committing on ten is kind of like a, an actual like thought process. If you take one, you don't like it, but one, it's kind of like an impulse buy, right? You go into the the shop this food store and you, you're walking down the final aisle and you're like, you know what? I could take this. And that's kind of what it felt like to me. It's like, it's that impulsor shopper where he's looking for something. He's like, I do want an edible. I haven't tried this, but it looks awesome and I can easily grab it. And is that kind of how you've seen it, it quickly yeah. play out? Yeah, for sure. And it's a register add-on, you know, retails, retail loves it. Um, we've just seen exceptional growth with that, with that product in every market that we're in. It's, um, you know, it really is, it's, 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 it's really fun. Um, you know, and I think we'll continue to see, continue to see that, that growth, but, you know, equally, I think what has, what has led to the success that we've done a product form factors and being able to, to attract that, that consumer, but also is our, our lead and, and our push with the, with the minor cannabinoids and the targeted effect, you know, formulations that we've made. So in our, in our, you know, we've got the higher dose single serve, but in, in our other categories, which we've got the pearls, um, we've got the chocolate bars, then we also have pips, which are like M&Ms, right? And, and those are our lower dose products, but really leading into the day and night effects. So, you know, the, the sleep, our one-to-one-to-one -to -one -to -one formula, uh, CBN, CBD, THC, and then the CBG, our daytime, which is really more of a focus, which is really fun. It's like such a fun product to take to a concert. The focus one? Yeah. 
really good. It's I haven't tried that one. My favorite one that you make is the sleep one. I call it the smiley sleep because I take it <laughs> and I'm smiling and I wake up and I'm very smiling and my wife always <laughs> teased me about it. And I've tried a bunch of other sleep ones and I and I wonder like from the formulation standpoint, was that something critical to get in to have it one-to-one-to-one at 10 milligrams or yeah. did you experiment with anything else earlier on in the process and then end up settling differently? That is a great question. And it's a really good story, you guys. Okay. So back in back in 2018, 2019, CBN was like $25,000 a kilo for this stuff. It was crazy expensive. Now it's significantly less, but it was really expensive. It was really new. There were other products on the market, not in Oregon. We were the first CBN product, edible product on the Oregon, on the Oregon market, but there were some in, in California that were low dose. So Kiva had one that was out there. And I think a couple others that were really, it was more like a four to one or a 10 to one with the one being the CBN. So we started looking at this and we were trying with formulations thinking, you know, like, how do you, how do you bring this to market at a cost that makes sense to consumers when you're passing on this, this cost? And, and we just kept upping it because like, no, this isn't effective enough. It has to be really good. And we found this one to one to one formula and, uh, you know, we're like, we got it. We nailed it. And then we did the math on the backside and we're like, oh my gosh, this doesn't make any sense. So like, we believe we're going to double down on this. We believe that the price is going to compress. We double down if we eat our britches for, you know, for a, for a few months that we're going to see this, this happen. And we were right. Right. I mean, it was a good, it was a good bet and it, and it made sense. And, and it's very quickly become the best selling ratio of any product we've ever made. And that, you know, it's a CBN, that one to one to one ratio makes up about 30% of our revenue across across three products. Yeah, it's it's it kills. It's it's easily one where like the first time you have it, maybe you're a little unsure, especially if you're a newer consumer and you're like, I don't know, will help me sleep. You take it, you know, right away. And it's like my ultimate favorite one to take. And it kind of stinks because like I take it and I go to sleep, but I am so happy the entire time I don't think I anymore. Um, but I want to stay with kind of some of the thought process. It seemed like that was a pretty aggressive move, right? It was pretty bold understanding that from a math standpoint, it doesn't make sense. And if it is one that continues to to go out, or let's say it doesn't even sell, you're kind of caught out in the rain. So yeah. it seems like that's not the only decision like that. You made the other decision with the impulse buy. Is that a part of the key strategy? And where did that kind of that thought process come into like understanding from a nuance as a company, this is the type of strategy we're going to deploy? Yeah, I mean, this is a hyper competitive industry and everybody's constantly looking at how you're going to, you know, there's there's lots of good gummies out there. I mean, there's tons of good gummies out there and it's a, it's a big play in a, in a lot of different strategies, right? You can't just taste good and be able to make it and be successful. You can't get just have a good, a, a good ratio. You have to bring all the pieces in it together. And so, you know, I'd say we're constantly innovating. The, the market's still so early um, there's other new cannabinoids right now that we're investigating and looking at and playing with because they just continue to evolve. We're still in the very early stages, but you can't be afraid to make mistakes. And that's just something that that I've never been afraid to try things. You know, we can always look at it and we try to make good judgment calls, right? And uh, look at things. I mean, we've made mistakes. We launched a CBD company and tried really hard. I placed big bets on CBD and and we we lost our shorts on that and ended up putting a, a pause on it, not forever. And that's not really our fault. Um, I'd say it's, you know, a, just a product of what happened with lack of regulation from the federal government and where things went, particularly in the edible category, they they gave no clarity and the main market just kind of went sour on it. So, you know, between that and, you know, Oklahoma has been a real struggle for us. So we've placed bets on things that didn't work out, but I think part of our success is not being afraid to try and then also not being afraid to cut your losses 
um, and going in so deep that you can't back out. Um, I think a lot of people just keep doubling down. Like they just get in so deep here that they, that they continue to double down. And, but practice makes perfect with anything. I've gotten way better at making better decisions by doing this, lock it up, if that makes sense. Got a pretty good handle on if it's going to be successful or not at this point. So with that CBN bet, it wasn't like you guys got CBN and we're like, all right, we're launching the product. Like, How long did you guys experiment with CBN in terms of formulating different products and different doses and kind of like, how long is that kind of R&D process? Is it standard across every single new product that you launch? Or is it kind of like you guys know instantly once you make a first product of a a new miner that you're like, okay, this is going to be good. We're going to fast track this. Like talk us through kind of that R&D process and like taking something from concept to the market. It's really different for, for every scenario. I mean, so FloraWorks is a manufacturer of CBN and minor cannabinoids, and they are, I think, if not the largest, one of the largest and are, are one of the only ones that are, that are doing this uh, to ISO standards here in the United States. They are based in Portland um, and they're really good friends. So early on, we had access to, to CBN in a way and to really understanding how it was being processed, what was happening, and then working with the formulators themselves to help us with this. So that gave me a lot of confidence of, of what we were doing. We also, we spent months really looking at it. And then we 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 brought some product out into some focus groups and did some placebo. You know, this wasn't, this isn't super large. In fact, we can't do this publicly because we're operating in a limited, I say publicly, we can't just go launch this as a company. You have to do this really, really independently because we're not under regulation. I can't send something out that isn't a fully batch tested product in packaging out and through dispensaries to consumers to test. So by the time we've done that, we got to believe in this. So we're any of this, you know, R&D work that we're doing internally, like we're doing this really, and everyone today, everyone in this industry that's doing this is doing this kind of in a bubble, really, because of the compliance rules. So we use Oregon as our test dummy, right? And we still do that with everything that we launch right now. We use Oregon. So Oregon has more products on the market than any of the other markets that that we that we launch. And we use it because it's a it's a great market. They give really good feedback. They're really, really educated consumers with a lot of different options. And they are really familiar um, and educated with cannabinoids and with cannabis in general. So uh, really, that's our that's our test dummy is Oregon. <laughs> I'm fascinated to know how many data points that like you're looking for in order to feel comfortable about making a decision. Because obviously, from a timing standpoint, it could vary. From a purchasing standpoint, it could vary. And obviously, you know, the people who love your products might love everything you do, even if the product isn't in quote unquote the one you want to go with. So, how do you make those decisions, and how do you make those those gut feels and those decisions on like this is enough data cases in order to move forward? That's a good question. I mean, a lot of it is gut and looking at it and seeing something. I mean, when we tried the one-to-one-to-one formula, there wasn't one person that tried it that didn't say, this is amazing. I need more. I mean, literally across the board, it's the best formulation. And some of that was we just, you say luck, but luck is is not necessary. Like we didn't just stumble upon it. We worked really hard to find it. But I mean, that probably is the, the happiest kind of thing that we've come along. I mean, we haven't found another formulation that we've created that I could say tops that. I mean, for real, and we've really leaned into it. Um, but we have tried lots of different form factors. We've panned products. We've done all sorts of, uh, you know, different product um, form factors that that we thought would be, that would take over the world, you know, chocolate covered, 
espresso beans and medallions and caramels and all sorts of chocolate-covered pretzels and, you know, all sorts of different candy. We've looked at doing Starburst and even making Skittles and, you know, like, a you know, different things. But I tell you, we we keep going back to these, these formulations that are targeted effects. Consumers are really comfortable with a gummy as a vehicle. And what I would say is everybody's looking for something new, but I would advise anybody that's coming into this space, if you can lean into what people are already doing, right? You lean into their habits that they're already doing and you make that better, right? So if everybody's already really comfortable with a gummy, then taking that and making it better so that I can help you sleep better or help you stay focused or help your life be better is a much easier transition to growth than it is to say, stop what you're doing, eating gummy vitamins. Now I have something new for you that I'm going to train you to do something different. I mean, those sound like simple, dumb marketing plays, but it's really like, you got to kind of keep it simple, stupid. You got to like go back to the basics and lean into lean into what people's habits really already are and what they're looking for an answer to. I think that's great advice. And I think that for people who are trying to reinvent the wheel, at the end of the day, why is that necessary? Because individuals like yourself have have moved millions of units. And I know Q1 was a great quarter for you. So I'm curious to know if you could share kind of a recap on how that went and maybe some of the information. Yeah, sure. Q1 was a was a fantastic, the best quarter we've ever had. We're seeing growth in every market we're in, which is really exciting. Oregon really saw like a 22% decline in sales and we grew by 80% last year in Oregon in a mature market. So we're seeing real growth. Um, we, we produced over a million megas there between just three markets, Arizona, Oregon, and Missouri. And that's just, just in the megas themselves. And and um, you know, Canada, um, we've we are um, in a number one position up there in Canada with our with our pearls. It's a it's a different scenario up in Canada. They are only allowed ten milligrams at a pack. So we've got we've got five pearls that are each two milligrams a piece versus what we do in the United States. So it's just like Canada, everything is like the same but just slightly different. Um, <laughs> so it it is it is the same up there. But but you know, just significant growth and and progress. Um, so yeah, I mean, it was, we're seeing real growth in all the markets we're in and it's really exciting. It's, the megas are growing, but I would say also these targeted ratios. It's an incredible accomplishment. I'm curious to know, did that surprise or shock you? And what did your dad think? Did he feel like, hey, <laughs> my dad, you know what? My my parents are, are diehard Texans. And I have to say both my mom and dad are complete converts. They, you know, if I had told them 10 years ago, they would never, you know, they're just, you know, they're pretty conservative Texas people. And, and uh, you know, my mom is is completely transitioned off of Ambien and, and medication. So she's she's using the one-to-one-to-one and so are every one of her friends. You know, I, it's, it's really, I'd say it's just, it's so inspiring to see what this plant is doing for people. And that's what keeps me going. I mean, it's like dealing with navigating the regulations and the and the banking and all the things that are the constant hurdles are, are really challenging. But to go back to what we are doing and, and the amount of um, success that this plant and good products are having um, is really inspiring. It's really cool. It's really cool. So let's talk about your expansion strategy, entering new wow. markets. I know your team takes a slightly different approach than some of the other out there, which allows your team to kind of control some of the inputs and the variables, but at the same time, makes it rather expensive. I'd like you to kind of expand on that for our listeners unfamiliar. 
Yeah. So most companies and brands such as ours go into a market under a licensing deal where they, which is more of a traditional model that you'll see um, in regardless of in any industry, right? So you license your IP and you give your recipes to someone and then that company in another state makes the product and sells it under their license and puts it out on the shelves. That's the way most, most people do things. We are one of only a very small handful of companies that are doing what we call a reverse licensing deal. So we actually will go in and we will operate. If we can have our own license, we will we will get it. Um, but in a lot of states, you uh, an individual manufacturing one isn't attainable or it's too expensive. We will find someone that has a license um, and we will, in theory, lease back space from them. So we will go in and we will build out space under their license, bring in our people, our packaging. We will work under their license. Um, so it's, it's really no burden to the license they're collecting they're collecting the the royalty for allowing us to operate under their license and while that's it is more expensive it's a capital investment in the markets that we're going to um you know a, a significant capital investment and we're taking the burden of actually taking our teams and shipping stuff all over the place and managing deliveries what we found is it gives us the ability to to really control and have a pulse on what's happening out there at the at the retail side and and both with our products um, and and to be able to double down when we need to because um, we're in control so it's been really successful um you know I'd say it's a slower progression than a traditional licensing model because it's hard to do more than two or three of these a year um just simply by the amount of infrastructure and time that it takes. Because, I mean, you're literally going to the moon and building your own house and setting it up every single time um, from scratch. So it's, you know, it's a lot of work, but it sure is fun. We're having a good time. What was the motivation behind uh, approaching the expansion with that business model instead of kind of like... Yeah, well, we, the first deal we, we did, which was in Nevada, was a more traditional license model. And I very quickly grew frustrated with it. Um, the, a, the lack of control just with the product itself, B, the, the doubling down on being able to, to control relationship with retailers and the ability from a marketing perspective. If you're just collecting a royalty, it becomes really challenging to bring in new products and pivot very quickly because you're not in control of that. The license is actually in control of that. They may have purchased packaging. They're working through things. They have a different agenda on where what's important to them with other products they might be making and things they have going on in their kitchen. When we're doing it ourselves, you know, I quickly, I've just really felt handcuffed. So we we experimented with that when we went into Arizona and really, really accelerated our growth and and kind of decided that was that was the model that we were going to go forward with in all the markets um, moving forward. And, you know, uh, Wild, if you're familiar with Wild, is is does a similar model from us um, in, in that way. They're, they're also an incredible company out of Oregon, but I don't think there's another edible company uh, brand entity that is growing like we are. I mean, I can only imagine the type of challenges that went into that first experience and also probably the frustration for you with understanding like how critically important is that brand staying powder and how hard you worked in order to achieve that. And when a consumer in a new market tries the product that might be a little different because it's another team doing it versus your team, right. it might be off-putting. And then from you, like being the, the head of the company, it must be so disheartening for that feeling because you could be pushing consumers that might be a good fit towards another competitor. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's true. I mean, it really is. And it's like you, it's, 
It's particularly challenging when you look at these states that like, it's really easy to go into a, a new state where there's not a lot of products on, where the where the demand exceeds the products on the market. You actually don't have to be good to, to be successful because you put anything out there, the demand is so high, people will buy it. It can be the worst product ever. People will still buy it. Um but but as the, every market every market compresses and finds its equilibrium, and they all do it in different in different timelines, you know. But but they all start to equal out, and you'll start to see different products rise to the top. And it's really interesting to watch that progression happen. And I have I have a lot of faith in in what we're doing because what we're finding is success not just in new markets where we go in and we're just one of a few products, but we're seeing continued growth in these really mature markets like Oregon, you know, that's been going for a long time and we're still seeing really significant growth. So, you know, it's a different model. It's, it's really challenging. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's hard to do, um, but we're doing it. <laughs> when you create the products where you get additional expansion in these new markets, is there a certain target demographic that you envision as purchasing these products? And do you think that there's more of those people coming in or is it a different product or excuse me, target demographic that's kind of migrating in maybe like the older older gentleman who's looking for a substitute for alcohol. How do you think about that? Yeah, I think, you know, our, our product line, we like to say we have something for everybody, right? So the, the Megas and the Mini Bars are a product line that we've got that is the higher dose. They're the, the single serve, um, 10 peak compliant. Uh, and then we have products that are that are really on the the 10 piece that are that are and those and I say the single serve generally attracts a younger crowd, a crowd that is looking for for a higher milligram and a milligrams per dollar. They're looking at a value of what they're getting per dollar because they're actually consuming more milligrams. So that is a big bread and butter of what we're doing. And it's a real disruptor when we go into other markets that you know have products on the market when and generally we find that doesn't exist in most of these new markets that we go into. Then we also really see, I say it's a more mature customer, right? That that has a that is looking for a lower dose product generally to help them with sleep. Uh, but sometimes for focus or anxiety, but they're coming in looking for a targeted effect, not just THC. They're looking for an actual to solve a problem that they've got. And that's where we see these more expensive, a higher end um, product that's, you know, it's, it's still an, it's still a good value for what you're getting. Uh, but but you're seeing that the 10 piece products with the chocolate, the pips and the pearls. Do you see that uh, product skew volume differ from state to state significantly? That's a great question. A little bit, but but really what we see are 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 two signature SKUs, which are the one to one to one and the three to one, the CBG. Those two SKUs right there are about 50% of, of what we're doing. Um, so, you know, like on that side. So the T, you know, we have other ratios, some just straight THC and a sativa, you know, some with you know, we do a four to one uh CBD to THC, which is actually fantastic product. I mean, it's a great value. You know, in a, in one little pearl, you're getting 40 milligrams of CBD and 10 of THC. It's a great product. But again, I mean, it's we we see these two signature products are are really and some of that is probably geared towards they're really easy to sell, right? So it's really easy customers come in and they're looking for I need help sleeping. Um, we've made it really easy for the bud tenders to actually promote a product that they can stand behind. What's the future roadmap for? I know you kind of teased out that you were experimenting with some other minor cannabinoids. Is there anything you can share? Anything consumers that are big fans of your products can expect for, let's say, in the future or maybe when Maryland comes online? Yeah, for sure. So we, you know, we're really excited. All our products in Oregon are now made with rosin. So we're really excited about that. We see rosin 
products and and more, you know, terpene products being cut out. See, you know, it's interesting where the market went, right? It was RSO was initially that it went to distillate where everything was super clean and now it's getting more educated and people are really more interested in the plant itself. And so we're seeing, you know, the the market mature, um, which is really exciting. We are, are experimenting with THCV, really excited about, about that. There's, you know, some other minor cannabinoids. Right now, everything is still really expensive. And so it becomes really challenging to bring it out. You know, we're at such a scale of a company right now that we have to have a repeatable, dependable source that we're able to bring some, you know, I mean, we need kilos of this stuff on a dependable basis. Um, and that's really challenging with with where a lot of these, like these newer development things. So it's a lot of it's in development stage and, and early testing, but it, it just, this industry moves so fast that um, I think we'll see more of that. Are there yeah. any sort of early findings internally in your gut that make you feel like that first sleepy one where you you knew right away you had something good? Is there anything where your gut tells you, I think, no. something? No, I have yet to find something that I can say. I haven't come across. I mean, just honestly, I haven't found something that I can say is a better formula than the one-to-one-to-one. I haven't. I mean, but, you know, I mean, that doesn't mean it doesn't exist. We just haven't uncovered that rock yet. But, you know, right now it is such an incredible and really effective formula. And it's, you know, it's great. You know, what's interesting when you ask me in different markets is in uh, in Nevada, in Vegas, our three to one, which is our, you know, the focus awake one is actually sells better. That's the only market that it sells better than our one to one to one, which makes sense, right? Because people want to get high. And they actually don't want to go to sleep. They want to stay up all night and have a good time. Yeah. But, uh, but everywhere else, it's 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 the one-to-one-to-one. Helps them win some money in Vegas, right? That extra That's focus. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> no way there. <laughs> Are there any elements or approaches that your team is implementing that you feel should receive more recognition? Oh, I've never thought of that uh, like that. Do I... Um, I don't know. I, I I try to stay humble and modest with where we're going, and just really appreciate it, you know the the quiet success as we continue to on our quest for world domination. <laughs> you know, I think we've been really, and we will continue to be really innovative with with the cannabinoids. We 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 pivot very quickly, and our ability to control our destiny in these markets allows us the privilege to do that. So you know, I I, I can't think of anything off the top of my head other than. Um, you know, just watch out. <laughs> Here we come. <laughs> when you got started in the cannabis space, what did you get right? And most importantly, what did you get wrong? The biggest thing that I got right was not taking money and staying very lean and and scrappy initially, right? I mean, I think particularly in, in the market today, you can look at it. It's really, really challenging for any company in the cannabis space to start out of the gates with debt and be able to make it. It's just, you know, it's just, it's just is a it's just a really challenging industry. So, you know, I I did not take money. I hired an accountant to come on early on. So we started, you know, we were just really above board. Um, and that really set us up for for success. What did I get wrong? I didn't start gummy early enough. And we focused on CBD when uh, you know, 2017, 18, when we really should have been focusing on on, on TAC. You could sum up your experience in a main takeaway or lesson learned to pass on to the next generation. What would it be? Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid to to conquer your dreams. Like people are so timid sometimes, and it may not be the right decision, but just make a decision. 
just do something because because just just keeping the momentum going. And it's really that's what I I see so much is is that this younger generation I see it in my daughter who's in college is there's especially particularly with social media and everything that's happening people get paralyzed by fear and and the and and paralyzed that and afraid that they might do something wrong or that it might not work out right and you know you just can't be afraid to 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 fail because that's 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 how you grow and you get better you get better and better and you make less mistakes as you go that's great advice all right prediction time what trends do you predict will shape the future of the edible market and how is your brand adapting to stay ahead of the curve Oh, targeted effects. So products that are targeting uh, actual solutions, right, to issues, because that's large consumer base are taking those. Um, I do think we're going to see a shift back into um, rosin and resin products, um, solventless products, um, just like the shift into organic foods happened, natural organic foods, we're going to see that shift start to happen. And I think we're going to see gummies continue to dominate. Um, Lastly, I think we're going to see the edible market continue to take over and grow. And uh, I predict that within 10 years time, this is far out there right now. Right now, edibles are about somewhere between 13 to 17% of any market that you're looking at. I predict that, that I'm going to say five years. Within five years, edibles are 25% of, of the average market in any, in any legalized state. Let's go. Really, is it's the gateway product for new consumers that are coming in, and and right now the majority of the products uh, consumers that are in here are experienced consumers, and, and we're 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 selling to them, and there's lots of them, but we want to bring everybody into this, and and those people are going to start with these products, and I take great responsibility for that because we, you know, as as manufacturers in the edible market, we have the ability to either make someone or break someone. They may get one shot, and if they have a good experience, they may they may become lifers. And if not, they may never come back. Perfectly said. I'm going to agree with Christine. I think that, uh, I think the future is honestly going to be heavily reliant on uh, effects, right? So people are going to go in and buy specific products expecting a specific outcome. And as more science gets involved in this whole strain name situation, that's kind of a giant mess, if you will. Um, they're going to sort it out and determine that specific strains have specific chemicals and those combination of chemicals at those ratios will help with this effect, right? And I think that that's going to kind of be a lot more robust science in five years than it is right now, more of like this anecdotal science. I think you're going to have a lot more uh, a larger body of scientific evidence that supports those claims. So I think that's where the future of of the edibles industry is. And I, I agree. I think the edibles industry will most likely, I think it'll probably be 50 to 60% in 10 years, just because like, I mean, everyone knows smoking, inhaling something on fire is not good for you, right? So like, as we continue to grow the industry, more and more people are going to move away from smoking, right? Like, and we just don't know what the long-term effects are of someone smoking five joints a day for 50, 60 years are like we do with cigarettes. And once we do, I think that you'll see uh, the same kind of trend that happened in tobacco happen in uh, cannabis. What do you think, Brian? Well, 
I'm kind of biased because I'm a daily edible consumer. So uh, yes, I agree, Christine. It is definitely going to be a big part of the market. And, and I think the onset is so critical. And I think what I've heard from inexperienced people is that they smoke because they want to control kind of their total quote unquote high. When in actuality, the edibles is exactly what you're really looking for in a small dose form. You can get exactly yeah. what you're looking for consistently every single time. There is so much variability with the smoking and the different various of the plant that once people start experiencing the fact that edibles can be that consistent high that they're looking for, could it ex- take away from that one glass of wine? I'm not sure. People love that. But there is a chance to really infiltrate that category to a point where it becomes a daily part of people's habits. And like we've seen with sleep and Ambien, maybe with Adderall and Focus could be the next wave where people can find a more healthy alternative plant-based medicine that can help yep. alleviate a lot of these issues. And uh, I'm excited to watch your team not only kind of infiltrate the East Coast, but start to dominate the East Coast. So Christine, for our listeners, they want to get in touch, they want to learn more, and they want to buy groomed products in the future. Where can they find you? Well, you can find us in Oregon, Arizona, Nevada, uh, Oklahoma, Missouri, all over Canada. Here in the summer, probably around August, so I think we'll launch in August, you'll be able to find us in Maryland. Woo! Excited about that. Um, yeah, New Jersey. Um, hopefully, we're able to get that launched Q4. Um, we do have a license in New Jersey, so we're we're uh, working on construction and through the through the New Jersey process right now, which is which is lengthy. So yeah, more more states coming on. We're we're constantly looking at deals and looking at states and looking at opportunities. Um, I say it's really important for us every community that we go into that we dedicate our team fully and completely. So we're really committed to the markets that we enter and making sure that we, you know, really, really commit to them. Well, appreciate that. Thanks so much for taking time. This was a lot of fun. Yeah, it's so much fun, you guys. Thank you. Guys, if you've enjoyed this podcast over the last few years, can you please take three minutes or less and leave us a quick review on Apple or Spotify? All reviews make a massive difference for us and help other people like you find this podcast. From the bottom of our hearts, thank you. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Season one of Dope History is now available at dopehistory.com. Dope History weaves you through the lives of those who have been touched by cannabis or have had an influence on the events that shaped our laws or relationships with this plant. You'll hear tales from Frenchie Cannoli, Keith Strop, Eddie Lepp, Tom Alexander, Ed Rosenthal, Wolf Seagull, Jorge Cervantes, and Tommy Chong. Available now at dopehistory.com.